What is the meaning and purpose of Pentecost? Pentecost. We hear it often out in churchianity quite a bit. And is it just the Acts 2 act of giving the Holy Spirit that gives it its significance? Well, for most who claim the Bible in our day, Acts 2 Pentecost is the start of the assembly with no obedience required, by the way. For them, Pentecost means a complete doctrinal turning point with new standards and practices. That's what they are told. That's what they have learned through the years. And they are in error on all counts. First, the assembly was already up and running. Back with Moses, Acts 2.38. This is he that was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel, which spake to him in Mount Sinai with our fathers, and second, who received the lively oracles to give unto us. This is Stephen speaking in the New Testament about lively oracles, that is, Yahweh's word, that is, what was given at Sinai, to give unto us, again, New Testament. Are you making the connection? Most in churchianity do not. First John 2, 7 corroborates, says, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, which you had from the beginning, from the beginning, from Genesis, all the way back. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Does it start to resonate now what Yahweh is doing? Separating truth from he takes serious task for the truth seeker. When someone comes to the truth, he typically takes serious what he has learned and takes seriously a look at these automatically accepted beliefs that he grew up with. Most people inherit their family's beliefs, let's face it. What are you? Well, I'm what my family is. I'm a different, this, you know, whatever denomination. Until maybe one day they do. Something snapped. Something clicks. Maybe they learn that we must call on the true name of the Heavenly Father and His Son. Maybe they learn other truths as well. Maybe the whole focus of what they thought was correct, they found to be in error. Well, today's worship is really described in Mark 7, 8. Yahshua said, For laying aside the commandment of Elohim, you hold the tradition of men. And boy, do they ever lay aside the commandment. What the Bible tells truth seekers to do is in what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Prove all things. That means go to the book. Go to the book. Hold fast what you find there that's good. Look in the book. Every seeker of truth at some point must question tradition in the light of the word. If he's really looking for truth. You've got to question. Question everything. The scriptures are the final authority for right teachings and beliefs. 2 Timothy 3.16, where it says all scripture, Paul says, is given by inspiration of Yahweh. Inspired, inbreathed, breathed in, breathed out. It's his words from his mouth. Inspired of Yahweh. All scripture for reproof, for correction. For instruction in righteousness, that the man of Elohim may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 
It says it all. This is, a, this is what we need. He, he puts it all in a little capsule and gives it to us succinctly. It's all we need. All scripture. Not man-made stuff. All scripture. So Paul refers to the Old Testament by scripture because that's all they had. That's all the apostles had. That's all Yahshua had. That's what he taught from. The scripture, the Old Testament. What's the first thing they want to throw out? Oh, we're a New Testament group now. We don't, uh, we don't bother with that Old Testament. That's, that's dead and gone. <clears throat> Callers to YRM often detail the path they took in their present understanding. They'll say, well, I was in the fill-in-the-blank church until I learned of the Sabbath. So I went to a Sabbath-keeping church until I learned about the importance of the name and the feasts. And so I came to YRM. To inquire. It's all about learning. It's all about following. And that's basically what we're talking about if you want to encapsulate the meaning of Pentecost. We'll get into that shortly. The Feast of Weeks or Shavuot in Leviticus 23, 15 to 22 is a feast of first fruits of the wheat harvest. The wheat harvest. Yahweh commanded to have two wave loaves of bread as first fruits for the priest before the harvest could begin. Now, this is different from the first fruits of the barley harvest at the unleavened bread observance, right? Because that was just raw grain. They waved the sheaf before Yahweh. They said like this, up and down, sideways, whatever. And that was the first fruits offering to Yahweh. But this one's different. This is made, this is wheat of the first fruits made into something, made into loaves. From there, to there. And I'm sitting there this morning, and the gastric juices are really starting to pump because, man, you could smell. Oh, that was good. Our uh, premier baker, Chris, he knows how to do it. And that's one of the perks of sitting up front, by the way. You might try that sometime. But it was good. And I can't wait. Anyway, this Leviticus 23 feast continues in the New Testament with Pentecost in Acts 1-4. And being assembled together with them, Yahshua commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. So they're going to sit there for 10 days, and they're going to wait till Yahshua fulfills this promise that he has, which he says, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. So he said, stay there in Jerusalem and wait. You'll be surprised what's coming. He didn't add that. I added that. He didn't say it. But I'm sure they were. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Master, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It's not for you to know that, the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his power. Basically, the return of Yahshua the Messiah. And only, Yahshua said, Only Yahweh knows it. Angels would like to know. They don't know. He would like to know. It's only my father knows when I'm going to be sent back. But you shall receive power after that Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So there's a purpose of giving that Holy Spirit, to be witnesses of him and his truth to the whole world, to the whole world. 
the foundation and work of the Holy Spirit had not been established, and they were already chomping at the bit asking about the kingdom. <laughs> Wait a minute, slow down there, guys. Uh, you got some time between here and now and then. So, what do we have? We've got a first fruits made into bread. In other words, we see a progression. In unleavened bread, we have first fruits of just the raw barley grain. Now, we have first fruits made into something. Think about the Holy Spirit and what it does. It makes you something when you rely on his spirit and obey. So we're going from just getting out of sin, like it, you know, in Egypt, and giving Yahweh thanks through the, the, uh, the blessings of that uh, grain offering. Now we're going into a blessing of first fruits and a building of something within. There's the difference. There's the difference. Here are the facts. Christianity did not exist until the 4th century of the New Testament era. And its converts came from, guess where? Judaism. And that's a fact. The big changes and permutations that we see today took root in that century. 300 years after Yahshua. And Peter and Paul were sent to the Gentiles to bring them into that reorientation of the Israelite faith with a few changes. That's the man on the street. Uh, who started the church? He's going to say, if he knew his name, he'd say Yahshua. But, but church institutions with their rites and rituals and creeds are far different from what we see in the New Testament faith, as shown in the scriptures. And Yahshua had nothing to do with these man-made things. Nothing to do. He wouldn't even, it didn't even enter his mind to all the different changes that have come about in the last 2,000 years. Read the word and compare it to what you believe or what you were told to believe. See if there's any correlation there at all. Look at the book. Look into the book because that is what will be judged by. Stand before the judge. And the books were open and another book the book of life, and you were judged out of those things in those books. What books are we talking about? The only books that could possibly be are the scriptures. Judged by the scriptures, the whole scriptures. Well, in light of his Hebraic background, himself being a Hebrew, from Hebrew parents, from a Hebrew religion, did Yahshua do a complete 180 and negate almost everything commanded in the word, in the scriptures he was teaching Or did he elaborate? Did he embellish and explain the scriptures so that we could understand them? Well, he taught from the Old Testament, for goodness sake. Did he begin a Roman church with creeds and rites and rituals all neatly organized under a hierarchical government that made big changes to what he taught? Of course not. So the first step to truth for those steeped in churchianity is to get past their Greco-Roman mentality and start thinking like your Savior, a New Testament first century Israelite. That's where the truth is rooted. Yahshua taught from the Old Testament. He taught about his father. 
The Old Testament is all he had. And he became our example in following it. 1 Peter 2.21, for even here unto, for even here unto were you called, because Messiah also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Do what he did. Fulfill his works as you see him doing. In his Acts 24, 14 defense before Governor Felix, Paul said, but this I confess unto you, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the Elohim my fathers, believing all things that are written in the law and the prophets. How about that? Law and the prophets. What is that? Is that Romans? Is that uh, Revelation? No, it's the Old Testament. 25 years after Yahshua, he's teaching the law and the prophets. What's the first thing they do when they want to throw out the law, they point to Paul. Paul, a a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, who taught, was taught the scriptures under Gamaliel, the premier, might say professor, of his day when it came to the law. And yet, this guy's going to throw out the law? When the Bible believers came to realize the historical origins of Bible truth and how the Bible harmonizes from Revelation 1, 1, or Genesis 1, 1 to Revelation 22-21, the pieces fall satisfyingly into place. They say, hey, I understand it now. It's clear. I'm getting the whole picture. It's fitting together. I don't look at the Bible as bits and pieces of misunderstanding here and there and all over the place, and I don't get it. One lady said, how do I, how do I study the word? Do I start in Genesis and just start reading? Or do I take a topic, like in a topical reference, and start, you know, topic by topic? I said, whatever. Whatever works for you, do it. They get your nose in the book. You know, it's so exhilarating to finally see the scriptures clarified. Those who are blown away by the truth cannot wait to get out and tell everybody, right? Maybe you felt that way too. You've got to tell everybody. Only to find out that most aren't the least bit interested in learning it and hearing it. They're too held fast in calcified tradition and they don't want to budge. They're happy where they are. But Yahweh calls those people who... Have a desire. He knows. He knows who he wants in his kingdom, and he's calling them first as first fruits. How did that tradition that we see develop anyway? Well, it came about when the scriptures were replaced by man-made teachings. It came about through 21 church councils. It came about by trying to get away from the uh, Hebraic faith. And traditions have blinded the vast majority so that they don't even see the contradictions in what they believe with what they read in the Word. Well, of course, they're not reading the Word. That's the problem. Most don't have a desire to study things out. Probably don't even know how to study them out. And so they default to their minister who keeps them in darkness, and there's no traction. They just spin their wheels. Yahshua himself came only to the house of Israel. Paul explains in Romans eleven twenty five 25 that because of the spiritual blindness within Israel, Gentiles were allowed into the covenant because the people were not obeying Yahweh. 
And they weren't coming to him as his word tells them to. Israel hasn't been replaced, by the way. They haven't been replaced, like replacement theology, replaced by the church. No, 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 no. But others have been asked to, drawn to, become grafted in. Romans 11, 25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. For as ye in times past have not believed Elohim, yet have you now obtained mercy through their unbelief. You see, he opened it up. He said, you guys aren't getting the message. I'm going to open it up to those who might. Yahshua came to the Israelites because the promises were given to them first. John 1.11 tells us he came into his own and his own received him not. They rejected him. Let's kind of put it in modern terms. Let's say I have a car I want to sell and uh, person A, a good friend of mine, uh, was given a pretty good offer on my car. But after a length of time, he's clearly dragging his feet. I'm waiting and waiting and waiting and unwilling to seal the deal. So what do I do? Well, along comes person B, who's very interested in buying my car. What do I do? I go back to person A. I say, hey, hey, get with it. I have somebody who's also interested, and you better kick it in gear because person B is waiting in the wings. And that's what Yahweh did with Israel and the Gentiles that are grafted into the promise. Yahshua went to the lost sheep of the house of Israel first to show them where they had gone wrong and what proper obedience to the spirit of the law meant. They had it all twisted up. They were full of do's and don'ts and added laws and added this and that, just like we see in churchianity, added this and added that. Yahweh says you don't add to the word. From Genesis, it says that. In Revelation, it says that. Don't add to or take from the word. That's what they were doing. They had the letter down, but they missed the main point. Because Israel disobeyed and did not follow through with the promise to keep the covenant, Israel's promises through the new covenant are offered to anyone who will take hold of them. It's like we have a feast. (laughs) Kind of like... During the COVID, you know, we're speaking to 100 empty chairs. We have a feast and nobody shows up. So what do we do? Well, we go out to the road and say, hey, we're keeping a feast here. You want to come? And that's really what was going on. You're, you're not in sync with what I want you to do. So I'm going to add to you, to you and to the body anyone who also has a desire. But unless our Savior came as a Hebrew, no one of Israel would have believed him. From the timing of Israel's journey out of Egypt at Passover to Mount Sinai encampment would have been about seven weeks. And that's why we believe that the uh, Pentecost took place at that time when Moses received the law, when Moses got the commandments. This means that Pentecost was the time the law was given. And that's also what the Jews believe, too. You look at the, the length of time it took for them to... You know, they were going all over the place and so forth. But then they left Egypt uh, to get there. It was about seven weeks, 50 days. I once got a call from someone who agrees with our teachings but contended that the context we present them in is too 
legalistic. He said, people will call us legalists if we keep coming on so strong and urging obedience to Yahweh. Well, isn't that what we're supposed to do? I asked him whether he preferred maybe we should be illegalists then. Furthermore, if we are legalists, where does the Messiah Yahshua fit in? If we are what he terms legalist. That's kind of a, it's kind of a slam, really. That's what they, you know, we all know that. They're slamming those people who uh, keep pushing the law. Yahshua explicitly told the self-righteous man who asked him about how to find salvation. He said, what did he say? Keep the commandments. I guess Yahshua was a legalist. Why was Yahshua being so legalistic then? When he said in John 15, 10, to keep his commandments as he kept his father's, should he have been so pushy about that, about the commandments? Why would he be so resolute about that? Wouldn't a softer, spongier approach be a little better? Have less confrontation involved? Should John, who quoted Yahshua here, have been a bit more tactful and not risk offending the legal phobes who would disapprovingly read what Yahshua said in verse 10? Maybe Matthew was a bit too resolute in quoting Yahshua in 5.18 when he said, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Oh, by the way, I was going to mention this. Notice the Hebrew on there. Uh, jot really is yod. That's the first, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, small, or the, the name, I should say, and the smallest letter. What's a tittle? That's this. It's a decorative device in Hebrew that kind of, it's an embellishment. He says, not only will the smallest letter, but the, even the embellishments are not going to pass till I'll be fulfilled. But, so, why is he being so uh, hard on uh, those who may not agree, you know, about keeping the law? And then in Hebrews 5, 9, Paul writes, And being made perfect, he, Yahshua, became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Paul was a legalist. And Paul, you know, people don't like the word obey. He used the word obey. Try something more squishy. You know, give me a little wiggle room so I can kind of, don't have to obey like that. I don't have to be held so down so much to obey and, and you know, change uh, my habits and so forth. Maybe John 3.16 would work better. Okay. For Yahweh so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So all we need is belief in him. Look that up sometime. Look that word believe up. Because this verse isn't going to help either if you're trying to get out of the law, try to get out of obedience. Thayer's Greek lexicon says of the word believe, believeth, quote, a conviction full of joyful trust that Yahshua is the Messiah, the divinely appointed author of eternal salvation in the kingdom of Elohim, conjoined with obedience to Messiah. That's all part of being believe in. If you believe in something, you put your heart into it. And that means you would do what he did. You would 
follow what he said, and you would conform to what he wants. In Romans 8, 4, Paul wrote that the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us. How about that? The righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us. Did he really mean to include us when he's talking about fulfilling the law? I thought Yahshua did that. And when he fulfilled it, he did away with it. I thought just Yahshua was to fulfill it. And by doing so, abolish the law. But doesn't Matthew 5, 17 tell us not to think that fulfill means abolish? So what do they believe? Well, fulfill means abolish. But we fulfill it too. That means I guess we abolish it. Wait a minute. How's that? Something's not adding up. How, how could we keep and abolish it? Uh, why did Paul say that we also fulfill the law? Fulfilling means abolishment. If Yahshua fulfilled it by abolishing it, then did he mean that we also abolish it like Yahshua did when he fulfilled it? You see, it gets all kind of a tangled web that we weave when we try to get out of what the scripture tells us to do. Well, obviously, fulfilled does not mean abolish. Righteousness of the law is the Greek word didakoma, and means precepts of the law and all it demands as right. All that it demands is right. That's out of Vines, Expository Dictionary of New Testament words. Fulfill is plero and means to fill complete. It is also used of obedience, to preach fully the ministry of the appointed evangel. In none of these things is there a hint of abolishment. Not anywhere. To fulfill your obligation does not mean to abolish your obligation, but to do what's required. Anybody can understand that. And if fulfill means what the Greek says it does, then both Yahshua and the righteous satisfy the demands of the law through complying with it. Again, pretty self-explanatory. What makes the most sense to you, that both Yahshua and we abolish the law, or that we all do everything to satisfy its requirements? What would you say? We had a Randy's little quiz thing. We could put that on there, too, and see if anybody gets it. I think you all get it. I'm being a little facetious. But in light of hundreds of scriptures in support of obedience to Yahweh, we can insist that obedience to the ordinances is a necessity. Necessity. A classic verse many like to quote as nullifying obedience in the New Testament is Romans 10, 9 that if you shall confess with your mouth the master Yahshua and shall believe in your heart that Yahweh has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. See, confession and belief are all you need for salvation. But wait, read the next verse. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness. Unto righteousness, if you believe. What is righteousness? Vine said it means right conduct. How do you get right conduct? Conduct by the word. You can only get it out of the word, by the law. That's how we know what's right conduct. So from the heart, one acts in a holy or set-apart manner, which clearly means obedience to Yahweh's standards. All right. Just how did it happen that biblical teaching became twisted into beliefs totally foreign to what we find in Scripture? Totally foreign to the biblical history and evidence that we see. How did it happen? Why did Yahshua never practice what we see being spoken today? Why, didn't, why don't you find that in the scriptures? Why do we never find him or his apostles teaching today's 
beliefs. Where do we find him making changes in the Old Testament teachings? The total orientation of his teachings rested in the Old Testament. In John 12, 49, Yahshua says, For I have not spoken to myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, which I should, what I should say and what I should speak. And, of course, that brings us back to the Law and the Prophets. If worship was intended to be of the Greco-Roman flavor as today, why didn't Yahshua choose, or why didn't Yahweh send him to a nice little Roman family? If that's what our belief should be. Why didn't he base it in the Roman, Greco-Roman context? Why did he choose to have his most ambitious apostle Paul? Learned in Torah, the law, as a Pharisee under one of the best law teachers around. He went to Harvard for the law. Gamaliel. Sure, animal sacrifices were changed when Yahshua became our sacrifice, but he never altered the practice of keeping Sabbaths and feasts. You see, they're two different things. People think you abolish the sacrifices, you also abolish the the feast days. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Animal sacrifices never defined the feasts. They were done in the feast, but the feasts stand alone. They stand alone. You can't make that leap. Why do we have no account that either Yasha or his followers ducked in a church on Sunday morning to take communion instead of the annual Passover? How can we never find that in Scripture? Well, they did, the unstudied may say. Just read 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four to 25. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, I'm using this as a real, a real example of someone who used this. He broke it and said, take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner, he also took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament. What is this? What are we talking about? <laughs> We're talking about the Passover, right? It's not communion. It's the Passover. Matthew 26 is the source text for what is going on here. And it's the Passover, the Last Supper. They like to call it the Last Supper. It's really just the Passover meal. But they don't want to call it Passover, so they call it the Last Supper. Not something called communion. It's called communion to avoid calling it Passover. Clearly, what they were doing in 1 Corinthians 11 was celebrate the annual observance of the Passover. It's the memorial of Yahshua's death. Nowhere did Yahshua institute a new observance new observance and change everything and say, well, now you're going you're gonna to keep uh, not the Passover, but you're going to keep communion once a week, once a month, once a year, whatever they do. He said in Matthew 4.4 4 and Luke 4.4 4, that we must live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. That's an easy thing to remember, by the way. Matthew 4.4 4 and Luke 4.4. 4. but never add to or take away from. A key litmus test is that few will address what Yahshua and the apostles taught in conjunction with what they did themselves. It was the church that authorized all the changes that would ultimately make nominal worship what it is today. And none of it is found in the New Testament. Why didn't either Yahshua or the apostles, for instance, use holy water? Or teach the use of it. 
Well, the pagans used to wash themselves before entering their heathen. Where is Lent, Palm Sunday, and Ash Wednesday? Where in the New Testament can you find anyone walking around with ash cross smudged on their forehead? Ain't there. Where is going to heaven, unending pain and hellfire, and the challenges of purgatory in New Testament teachings? Or in the Old Testament, for that matter. Where are you going to find it? You're not. You can look like I have. For decades, never found anything like that in there. How come I can't find the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed in my Bible? Where is sprinkling for baptism or baptizing infants and children in the Bible? It ain't there. It just isn't there. Where is sprinkling for baptism or baptizing infants? I've, I've looked for years, never found where a building is ever called a church. When did that thing develop, that notion? Writing in Bible Review, Delbert L.A. Schuff, Jr., a retired Episcopal minister, wondered what would happen if Yasha were to return to earth to worship today. Quote, he would probably be amazed at what the worshipers accredited to him. The accretions from having passed through several cultures would puzzle this peasant Jew who said he came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. How about that? This is from a nominal minister. Continuing, he says, St. Paul, too, is understood in a new whole new light when seen as a Jew who is a member of the new sect, defending his new understanding of truth and relationship with Yahweh. Later, he calls it the new covenant. But the word berith in Hebrew is meaningless if one does not know the old covenant. Good observation. In Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8.10, we see that Yahweh is going to put the law in our hearts and write it in our minds. Uh, if you're going to do away with something, that's the last thing you would do, isn't it? Put it in someone's heart, put their inward mean in their being, inner man, and make it part of a person's thinking and desire. That's what it means to put it in your mind and in your heart. Look up Luke 6.45 and 12.34. Pretty clear. Romans 6.17, but Elohim be thanked that you were the servants of sin. You were the servants of sin. But you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Another contradiction we can't explain in modern uh, worship. When we realize that Yahweh's commandments, his statutes and judgments reflect his own nature... And when we comply with them, it makes us like him. Then we're starting to get it. That's the code he lives by, and that's the code he wants us to live by. We take on his nature through obedience. His character and persona are revealed in the same code of conduct that he follows, that Yahshua followed, that the apostles followed. Exhibited in the very ordinances he shares with us. Our whole desire and goal is to be like him, is it not? To be in the kingdom. Are we part, going to be trying to be part of that family? Sure, sure it is. Yahshua is his son, and we are his children, just as Israel was called the children of Israel. He's building a family. He's creating a family of people who are dedicated to him, who's being, being called out now. This is the central aspect of the good news Yahshua taught. That is what he came to show us through his own life on earth. You don't hear much about that. 
you hear about the gospel, but you never hear about the rest of it. The other half of the kingdom. Don't talk about the kingdom because they don't know what happens after uh, we are uh, put in the grave. They don't know what happens after that and when the resurrection occurs and what we're going to be doing. They don't talk about that because I guess they don't know. All you got to do is look in the book. You can find it. The religious establishment, the Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, they didn't get it. They set up their own parallel religion alongside the scriptures. Again, man-made. Man-made. Through the church, through the religious leaders of Yahshua's day, things were man-made all the time. The kicker is that it's easy to prove what we've been saying simply by checking out the teachings of the word. Compare them with what we find in the world. Just take tongues and cordons sometime and see whether you can find the words rapture in it. Church, Christmas, Sunday, Trinity, Lent, Easter. Okay, Acts 12.4. In the King James, you'll find the word Easter. But it's only found once, and at least in the King James, and it's a mistranslation of Passover, Pascha. Check it out. We fixed it in the RSB. A lady wrote to say that Easter is the right word. You guys made a mistake. It is the right word in Acts 12. But all she had to do is check the Greek, where the English came from. It's Pascha, the Greek word for Passover, not Easter. Yahshua's resurrection did not create Easter. On the contrary, pagan Babylon did in their mystery worship. They created that celebration. One distinguishing characteristic that sets the covenant people apart from common denominations, or I should say common denominators, because they all teach the same thing, is our instinct to go to the source languages to make up the translated word. That's why we have this Bible. We have the each significant word notated by a superscript number. We can go in the back and check it out in the Hebrew and the Greek. And believe me, when you start doing that, you, you start, your eyes really open up. Go to the Hebrew and Greek and then harmonize the entire Bible, both New Testament and Old Testament. Harmonize it. That clears up even more misunderstandings. You realize what it's talking about and why it's, 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 it's working with both Testaments. Effort, work, yes, but isn't our salvation worth it? Don't we want to get it right with Yahweh and his teachings and actions? It often takes some understanding to realize the authenticity of what at first seems inconceivable. News reports of burning rivers get people's attention until they find out it's the debris on the rivers that are burning. It's the oil and so forth. Oh, I see. What we confess, profess as true, sometimes seems foreign to other people. Those steeped in Roman thinking and doctrine, their minds never bent that way before. So they can't understand it. What Bible are you reading anyway? Two millennia of misguidance has left millions with a warped view of what the Bible teaches. And it's really sad, and it really gives us a lot of work to do. Get all that straightened out. We shake our heads and wonder how such absurd non-biblical notions could take root when it's clearly against what we find in the Word. One of the ways is through repeated exposure. Repeat an error long enough, you know, 
And not even our language is free of contradictory concepts. Think about these little couplets here. How do you act naturally? Act naturally. Ever had a near miss? Think about it. The phrase is really describing a near hit, not a miss. What about clearly misunderstood? Definite maybe. Pretty ugly. One man crew. Found missing. Include me out. I got a kick out of Yogi Berra, you know, the old baseball player, when he said, the future ain't what it used to be. Well, like self-contradictory expressions, the danger of, with erroneous teachings is that habitual exposure to them makes them acceptable. And that's why nobody talks, questions them unless those are enlightened and being called to Yahweh. Take the expression conspicuous by its absence. How can something be obvious when it's not there? We're in a parallel universe of sorts with churchianity. Getting the believer to break free of calcified traditions is a big job. And people react against that. They don't want you to tell them the truth. They, they turn go in another direction. But that's what's going to set them on the journey to truth. If they just open their eyes and say, hmm, I think I'll look into that. You know, the, a believer is a special breed. I, I, I can sometimes, maybe you've seen it too, you can just kind of feel that a person is different. Just kind of feel that he's different. We were on an airplane trip one time, sitting in the, in the uh, terminal. I noticed a guy sitting over in the corner. And for some reason, I kept, kept my eyes kept going to him for some reason. And I ended up sitting next to him. And we started talking the Bible. And he says, you know what? My parents believe almost like you do. And we're talking about feast days. We're talking about, uh, I don't think we mentioned the name, but we talked feasts, the Sabbath, and so forth. And uh, he was of the persuasion that uh, once saved, always saved. So I said, well, turn to Hebrews 6. And we did. I had my Bible. We started reading it. I can't explain it, he said. I I didn't know. But it opened up a possibility with him. And maybe he would tell his parents one day about, who knows. Um, You know, we can be exposed to truth. Sometimes it takes one or two exposures. People don't always respond the first time. They don't know how to respond until they think about it. So, here we have Pentecost. First fruits. First fruits in grain, first fruits in people. Made into loaves, made into something that could offer nutrition, spiritual nutrition for somebody else because they have the Holy Spirit fertilizing their brains and giving them the, the words to say and the effort to do. So, in closing, I'll just say may Yahweh bless all those who have been true to the command to keep his feast, keep his Pentecost around the world, as, as we know, there are many, many out there who are watching and listening and pray that the seed that we've planted will take root, will produce fruit. That's all we're doing. We're, we're planting seed here and there, everywhere we can, 
Paul says, I planted Apollos water, but Yahweh gave the increase. It's up to Yahweh. Sometimes we get discouraged. Someone's oh, just not getting it. I wish my, I wish my sister, I wish my mother, I wish my grandmother would just get it. Well, Yahweh will work with them if he's calling them. Now, sometimes people just aren't being called. I can understand that. So all we can do is plant the seed, and uh, Yahweh will give the increase, and that's what we're doing. Like Paul did, he went all around all these assemblies, seven assemblies, and went up north and, and uh, found out that some stuck with it, some were causing problems. He had to go back and revisit, try to go through, like the Corinthians, the worst of the bunch, uh, go back and correct them for what they weren't doing or were doing. So we don't know. But all we can do is get that seed out there. And we are so blessed for those that are helping us do that, as Jose said, through the offerings and through their prayers. And uh, we've come a long way since we were meeting in that little room back there. I don't know. We couldn't have been more than 15 people, maybe 20. We were jammed in. I think Roger and Naomi remember that. And uh, we had our Bible studies back there. And, and uh, hey, look at look what Yahweh's doing now. But... We just have to be faithful and keep, keep at it. And things change. We move on and we keep uh, his blessings and make sure that we're true to the word and never go far from it, never astray, go astray. So let us, if you please rise now, let us join in uh, the blessing given to Israel by Aaron and his sons in number six. And a blessing for having come here, for keeping Yahweh's feast, being faithful to his word. And so at this time, And Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, On this wise you shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Hallelujah.